Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, July 24, 2022. Today's message titled, Imperfect Faith, Perfect Gifts. As the early church is getting started, John Mark is invited along on the first, on Paul's first missionary journey. He's part of that trip. But then later, Paul and Barnabas disagree because during that first trip, Mark leaves and goes home, you know, for, for whatever reason. We're not exactly told why, but for whatever reason, Mark, Mark leaves. And Barnabas, the second time around, wants to take John Mark with them. But Paul disagrees. He says, no, Mark left us the last time. I don't, I don't want to take him along. And they get into a disagreement. And Barnabas and Paul actually wind up going their separate ways with separate people. But then later, it's interesting, as you read the letters of Paul, John Mark actually makes quite a few appearances in his letters. He's often part of the group um, that, is, that, it, uh, that sends their greetings when Paul is writing his letters to the various churches. And actually at the end of 2 Timothy, one of Paul's last letters that he writes, he tells Timothy, get John Mark and bring him with you for he is indeed useful to me. In ministry. And so we, we see just a complete change and a complete turnaround. And maybe, you know, maybe, you know, John Mark as, as his church is, is getting started, as the early church is getting started, you know, he's the nephew of Peter. Peter, whom Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. And maybe his proximity, his familial relationship with Peter, maybe it led him in, into arrogance. This is conjecture, but, you know, maybe he started off with the wrong motives. But now here we are, this is the first gospel that was written is Mark's gospel. And he's writing to Gentile believers in Rome and he's writing to them of a suffering Messiah, of a suffering servant. He's encouraging them in their faith as they're being persecuted for following Jesus. He's writing to them of their suffering Messiah. And just, I don't know, what a, what a turnaround. <laughs> Like for Mark, what a, what a journey he went on. And so I think we can take comfort and encouragement from that. Cause I mean, sometimes we, do we not have times where, where we stumble, where we, where we fall, where we need to be picked back up. And that doesn't mean if just because we stumble, doesn't mean that God's done with us. It doesn't mean that God can't keep using us. And so I think Mark is a good, just first initial picture of seeing someone who grew to see Jesus more clearly. So with that in mind, let's jump, let's jump in. Um, Verse 14 says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another, the fact that they had no bread. Jesus aware of this said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And of course, the obvious answer is no, they didn't understand quite yet. And so what's been going on here? It's always important when we approach a passage, it's really important for us to read what's going on around that passage. That will often provide a lot of clues as to what's happening and, and why, why Jesus is maybe saying the things he is, what prompted that. Um, so as you read, it's very important to consider, to consider the context. And so right, the passage just right before this, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus and they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, this is not a genuine sign seeking on their part. This is not a genuine inquiry because over the last five-ish chapters, Jesus has been demonstrating that he has power over the various elements of the world, be it disease, be it demons, be it death, be it natural disasters. You know, the disciples, when he calms a storm, they're like, who is this? The wind and the seas obey him. Who is this? And the Pharisees have seen this. They've already accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons. This is not a genuine inquiry. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. This is verse 12 of, of chapter eight and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, Matthew and Luke both expand this and Jesus says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah, which of course is pointing forward to Jesus's resurrection, that he will be in the earth three days as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days. And so that, this is the immediate backdrop. And now verse 14, they've forgotten to bring bread. This is also again, right after Jesus has fed the 4,000. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples a spiritual lesson here. He's telling them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And now the Pharisees represent the religious group and Herod, um, or like the Herodians, I think it's Matthew and Luke, both, both use that. Those who are of Herod's party of his entourage. On the one hand, you have religious legalism as a way towards God. And on the other hand, you have political elitism as a way to God. And Jesus is saying, beware of both of those. That's not, that's not who, what I'm about. That's not what I'm here to do. And the disciples begin discussing with one another, the fact that they have no bread. And maybe they were hungry. It had been a long day, who knows? But Jesus is really trying to hammer home. You can almost hear his frustration in this. Like he's really trying to hammer home a spiritual point. One other thing, this is roughly two years into Jesus's ministry. So the disciples have been walking around with him now for, for two years. And he reminds them of what they've seen. He's like, okay, I fed the 5,000, right? There was plenty of food there, right? Okay. I just fed the 4,000. Plenty of food left over, right? Do you not understand? I'm obviously not talking about bread. And again, Matthew gives us a little more detail in this and says, hey, 
Like Jesus says, I'm, how, do, how is it that you fail to understand that I'm not talking about bread? I'm talking about what's in their hearts. Because the Pharisees, as we just saw, they've rejected Jesus. They've seen his wondrous works. They've heard what he's had to say and they've pushed him aside because he doesn't fit what they think they need to do to be right with God. And the Herodians, they're, they're pretty much leaving religion aside altogether. For them, salvation is found in political power. For them, their freedom, their, the national freedom of Israel is more important than following Yahweh. And that's what they're after. And I think this is a warning for us as well. Like, I don't think I know this is a warning for us as well. It can be very easy for us to perhaps fall into legalism. It can be easy for us to fall into rituals over relationship with God. Or on the other hand, the country I come from, many people value the political freedom more than they value freedom in Christ. And they view Jesus as an, a means to an end politically. And that's not unique to the United States. That is found all over the world. And, I, and you know, leaven is an old word for yeast, which makes bread rise. And yeast, as you mix it into the dough, like it goes everywhere. And that's the thing. This type of thinking can easily pervade our hearts. It can pervade how... Uh, Pervade is the right word. It can pervade how we view God, how we relate to God. And that's the thing. The disciples, they knew the facts. They remembered the miracles. They remembered what had happened, but it hadn't led to spiritual transformation. And again, I think we can really easy, easily fall into that. We know lots of things about God. We're a well-educated and informed generation when it comes to knowing things about God. We have the benefit of so many scholarly works, so many commentaries, so many just historical studies, archeological digs. We know so much about the Bible, about the time of Jesus, about this time in history. We have so many sources to corroborate what had happened. And yet sometimes we know the facts, but it doesn't lead us to spiritual transformation. And that's the thing is that Jesus is after heart transformation. And we see that throughout both the Old and the New Testament, God has always valued relationship over ritual. And so consider with me, I wanna, just to make that point, I wanna consider a few different passages and then we'll come back to Mark. So we're gonna jump around for a minute. Turn with me to 1 John. I'll give you a minute to get there. I had the benefit of being able to put a bookmark there before, before we got there. But first John one, verse three, this is the apostle John. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay. Now we're going to jump into the Old Testament. And I actually brought up another, another Bible for this, so I didn't have to go too far. Um, 
Turn with me if you, if you can to Micah. This is one of the minor prophets. Micah 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And last, let's consider Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 11 through 13. This is again, Isaiah chapter one. What, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, a fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. And that's the thing. All throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites valued the ritual over the relationship with God. They felt that if they did the sacrifices, if they kept the feasts, if they kept the new moon, the, well, not the new moons, they weren't commanded to do that. Um, that was a, that's a, a pagan practice they brought in. But if they, if they did the outward things that were part of their law, then that would mean they could ignore the other things God had told them to do. And as we see consistently throughout the Old Testament, God says, that's not, that's not what I'm after. I'm not after dead animals. I'm after relationship. I want you to be my people. That's the thing is, you know, all throughout the prophets, God uses this imagery of an unfaithful wife. And they like to describe the people of Israel. And I, this, I, I think this shows the emotional hurt that God goes through, like that he feels when his people don't walk with him. Like, and, and the emotional just pain that he felt when Israel would go after other gods. You know, it says, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. We view that as a bad thing sometimes, but that's actually a, it's a good thing. He loves us. He wants to be in right relationship with us. And I think it hurts God when we sin. And maybe we just think of God as, we think of it transactionally. We think of, well, okay, if I don't do this or I do that, then God's okay. If I don't do it, then he's not happy. But we don't necessarily consider that like, in the same way that we can hurt one another, we don't consider that having a relationship with God actually means that we can hurt God. Jesus has always valued transformation over information. God has always valued relationship over ritual. And turning back to Mark, to Mark 8, that's what Jesus wants them to see. He doesn't like, these facts that they know that the disciples know these things that they know about God are supposed to drive them to relationship with God. They're supposed to drive them to deeper spiritual truths. And they still don't get it. They've seen, they've seen Jesus do all sorts of things over two years. They don't, and I mean, they remember, but it hasn't changed them. 
And Jesus even says like, are your hearts hardened? It's strange to think of the, we don't, we don't think of followers of Jesus having their hearts hardened. That's reserved for the bad people. Jesus says, are your hearts hardened? And that's the thing, our hearts need to be softened. Our, the eyes of our heart, not our physical organ heart, but of our mind, our soul need to be opened to clearly see Jesus. And I think, you know, this, um, I'm gonna turn to Ephesians briefly. You don't have to turn there, but I think Paul, you know, Paul prays a very beautiful prayer at the beginning of Ephesians. I think it's easy. I know I read over this <laughs> plenty. But Ephesians 1, starting in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Those are two very beautiful verses. There's a lot in there. We could preach a whole sermon on that. We're not going to, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> see, this is a sidebar. It's interesting to see the culture of a church changing because for years, silence. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden I'm getting back. Oh, change your sermon on the fly. Yeah, I'm, with all due respect, guys, I'm not going to do it today, but we're going we're gonna to stay in Mark. I think there's a lot of really good things here. Where was I? Having your hearts hardened. And that's the thing is, I think that's something we need to pray against. We need to ask God, help us to not get compliant when we see your good works, when we see the good things and the amazing things that you're doing in us and around us and among us, we just get used to them. And I think this is, a, this is true if you've been in church for a long time. This is especially true if you've grown up in the church. You see people who have grown up in the church and they're just, yeah, cool. He's died for me. What? It's incredible that the God of the universe took on human flesh, came down and lived and died for our sins. That's incredible. We just shrug our shoulders at it. We don't care. And that comes from, well, comes from a hard heart. <laughs> it comes from, it comes from us getting complacent. We know the facts, but they don't move us to greater and deeper worship of God. And I think that's why we, we need to guard against that. We need to pray against that. And again, there is, I mean, there's hope for the disciples. Like, you know, this isn't, I'm just going to tell you, this is something I read in a commentary. I didn't notice this, but I think, I think it's, it's very true. Jesus consistently uses the word like yet or still. Like in the end, he says, do you not yet understand? Which kind of implies that they will understand one day. There, there is a point that they are going to understand, but not yet. And it's slow, maybe. I mean, they've been with him for two years, literally doing nothing but following him around. But there's courage, or there's courage, I'm sorry. There's encouragement. Um, because Jesus rewards imperfect faith with perfect gifts. And lo and behold, a blind man shows up. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And so in between the disciples not understanding, and then Peter declaring that Jesus is the Christ, we have a blind man who is first healed partially and then healed completely. Now raise your hand if you think Jesus, the partial healing was due to a lack of power on Jesus's part. You all pass. That's good. That's good. I think that was on purpose. And I think it's, I think Jesus is showing both his disciples and us something of a a spiritual journey. So let's consider the blind man and let's consider the blind man's faith or lack thereof. Um, So they come to Bethsaida. Some people bring to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. A little bit of context here. They're in a Gentile area. Um, Bethsaida is is predominantly Gentile. Um, When Jesus fed the 4,000, this is also predominantly a Gentile crowd, Um, which as a side note, Jesus is the bread of life for both Jews and for Gentiles. So there is the all-inclusive gospel picture there. They're in a Gentile region. And these guys, the whoever whoever brought the blind man to Jesus, they have probably heard of Jesus, obviously. They've probably seen him do miracles. And maybe they have saving faith. We're, we're obviously not told here. Maybe they just believe in him as a miracle worker, as someone who can heal. And it's interesting because they ask him, they ask Jesus to touch him, which seems to imply that they probably are thinking more, okay, if Jesus does X, then, then the guy will be healed. That it seems to imply that, yeah, maybe, maybe they as well are more caught up in the ritual than in, than in Jesus himself. And the blind man himself seems to be kind of just brought along with this. You know, when Jesus heals uh, Bartholomew, or yeah, Barth- I think it's Bartholomew. It starts with a B. The, uh, in John chapter nine, when he heals that blind man, that man is crying out for Jesus. And when Jesus calls him, he leaps up and he goes to him, probably with some help because he was blind, but he goes, he goes to him and Jesus heals him. And this one, this blind man who, whose name we're not given, he's led to Jesus. And his friends are the one begging Jesus to touch him. The blind man isn't saying, you know, Jesus doesn't ask him like, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't, he doesn't ask any of that. It seems that this man, maybe he just had enough faith in the sense that like, well, my friends say this could work. Can't lose anything. Might've been all it was. And his friends probably had some misguided faith. Again, we don't know. I don't, I don't want to necessarily read, read their intentions when we're not told, but based on the little bit of information we have, it seems that maybe their faith wasn't quite in the right spot. But as Daniel preached for us last week, it's not the size of our faith. It's the object of our faith. And Jesus responds, you know, verse 23. So he took the blind man by the hand. He actually did what the, 
people wanted him to do. But no healing came through that touch. And he leads him out of the village, away from any sort of fanfare. This isn't going to be one of those public miracles where a lot of people see it. This is going to be private. Maybe the friends follow. Maybe even a little disappointed going, what's going on? I thought he was just going to touch him and it would be done. Disciples are also probably confused, just going, well, or maybe at this point they're used to it. Just like, okay, we'll just follow. We'll see what happens. He leads him out of the village and he spits in his eyes. This is not what they asked him to do at all. And he lays his hands on him and he asks him, do you see anything? And the blind man looks up and says, I see people. But they look like trees walking. And so for the first time in however long, in years, this man now can see. He can see something. He can see colors again. But it's only a partial healing. He doesn't see everything clearly yet. And this is true of the disciples who don't see everything clearly yet, as we've just established. This is also true of us. We don't see everything clearly yet. Despite the fact that we have the benefit of hindsight, we have the benefit of so much study and research and work. We serve and follow an infinite God who is infinitely wide and vast and deep. And we are finite. So no, we do not clearly see God yet. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. Before we get to verse 26, like verse 25, we see Jesus granting full sight. The man sees everything clearly. And again, the disciples are about to clearly see, at least in part, who Jesus is. And we, who are followers of Christ, we can see clearly, in part, who Jesus is. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I did warn you guys, we were going to be all over the place. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I think Paul captures this well. You might be going, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the chapter on love but I actually want to read a different part. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And a couple observations from that. You and I don't see clearly yet, but God has known us fully and clearly. So you and I are fully and completely known by God even though we don't quite yet fully receive or know him. Jesus rewards in perfect faith with perfect gifts. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. And again, this is a private, a private healing. This is not meant to be with a lot of fanfare. The other part of this too is people don't realize who Jesus is yet. And again, as we have seen already, there's already a lot of misconceptions that he's just a prophet, just a healer. He's not, people don't clearly understand that he's the Messiah and they don't understand what that actually means too. 
And furthermore, I actually think we get a really good example here. You know, Jesus very often doesn't seek praise or recognition or anything for the miracles he performs, even though he alone has every right to seek that sort of worship, that praise and that glory. And I think, I actually think that's a, something we ought to consider and to follow all, like all of us in that, you know, it's so often we maybe we want to do something big for God. Like, especially those of us who are in ministry, those who are like elders, this is a very common temptation. And, and even it's, it's very, again, easy to justify with, oh, I have good motives, but like the heart behind it is prideful and arrogant. It's like, oh, I'm going to do something big for God. I'm going to be, you know, I need to build my platform so that more people can be reached so that I can, you know, more people will hear the gospel that way is what we tell ourselves. But really many are just building up their own platform. And I think we get an example, a clear example here from Jesus. God doesn't need the fanfare. Like he doesn't need us to have big platforms in order to use us mightily and to use us well. And this is true, whether you're in ministry, whether you're not, your platform doesn't need to be big for God to use you. And so now verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So the disciples have time to think about this. They're considering, they're pondering. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And up till now, up, up till this point, the question really has been, who is this? Like, who is Jesus? You know, we see that um, when he calms the waves, the wind, the disciples are like, who is this? They don't, they don't clearly get it yet. But now they're starting to. Now their eyes are open. They're seeing dimly. They're starting to see more clearly. But if you keep reading, they don't see quite clearly yet. I know we didn't read this at the start, but I'm, I'm going to keep going a little bit through Mark. You know, and, and at this point, and it's after this point, it's after this recognition that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And, and in Matthew, um, uh, Peter clarifies, you are the son of God. There's a recognition of the deity of Jesus, like understanding that God himself has come down in flesh. And it's from this point forward that Jesus now starts to tell them, okay, now that you've recognized that I'm the Messiah, now that you've understood that, now I'm gonna start challenging and blowing away all the misconceptions you have about the Messiah. And he begins to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
or what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so Jesus just blows away every misconception of what the Messiah is and what it means to follow Jesus. Because up to this point, Israel viewed their Messiah as a political savior because it just, it simply did not make sense to them that the Messiah would come and die. It just did not make sense. And again, this speaks to God working in so many ways that humans would never think of or would never choose to do. But God in his infinite wisdom chooses to work this way. And so Peter and the disciples still don't quite see. And I think, I think in verse 30 um, of, of Mark 8, I think that's why he strictly charges them to tell no one about him. Because again, the disciples still haven't understood what the Messiah is actually there for. They haven't understood, no, this is a suffering Messiah. This is a suffering servant. This is not King David reborn. Not yet. If you read Revelation, that is coming. But at this point, Jesus is here as a suffering Messiah. And to this day, you ask people what they think of Jesus and you get all sorts of answers. But the real answer is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Savior. And maybe not even necessarily how we thought it was going to be. Certainly not how Israel thought it was going to be. But despite their mistakes, despite hardness of heart, the disciples do have faith. It's imperfect. It's, it's so clearly imperfect. This blind man has imperfect faith. His friends have imperfect faith. And is it not the gospel that Jesus rewards imperfect faith with perfect gifts? Is anyone among us going to claim that we have perfect faith in God? If you are, come talk to me because I'm, because I'd like to hear about that. I'd like to know where I could find this perfect faith, but as Paul says in first Corinthians, we look in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see clearly. We will in fact behold the glory of God face to face unveiled. And we will see it one day. So as we've already said, Jesus rewards imperfect faith with perfect gifts. Do we see Jesus clearly for who he is and what he has for us? I really want to urge and encourage us to press onwards and upwards into maturity to actually spend more time looking at Jesus. You know, in the beginning of the gospel of John, John the Baptist says, behold, I mean, to look at the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, the disciples aren't getting the spiritual truths because they're not really looking at Jesus. And so I wanna, I wanna encourage you, I wanna challenge you, look towards Jesus. Because again, we're all a work in progress. We're all somewhere, maybe somewhere different along the process of sanctification, but we're all works in progress. So I wanna push you, I wanna press you, what is it that Jesus is showing you or telling you that you need to see or you need to listen to? What do you need? What do you need to surrender to? 
And I can guarantee, this isn't a question, I can guarantee that you and me, we all need to look more at Jesus. And so let's do that. So I'm going to pray um, and we're going to sing another song. And during, during this time, um, as we do every week, we're going to take communion together. And again, communion, as, as we celebrate this every week, as we remember what Jesus did, we remember his blood that was spilled, his body that was broken for us. We don't ever want to get over that. We don't ever want to lose sight of that. We do not want to be those who, yes, theologically, Jesus died. We don't want to be that type of person. Because information, if it doesn't lead to transformation, well, it doesn't do anyone much good then. And so as we sing, I believe we're singing, um, what a friend we have in Jesus. Sorry? It's so sweet. I'm sorry. I must, I'm the one who picked the songs too. Um, yes, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus is what we're going to be singing. And while we sing this, I just, I really want to encourage and challenge you to honestly, to look at Jesus, to consider Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Ask the Holy Spirit to point out maybe any sins that you need to repent of or need to turn from. Confess those, thank Jesus that he died for that sin. And then come during the song, whenever you're ready, come and take the elements, bring them back to your seat and um, we'll take them together. If you're not a Christian in here, and that means if you have not understood that you are sinful and need Jesus, need his work, his death and his resurrection to save you, then it wouldn't be appropriate for you to take part in this. Um, And don't feel bad about sending this one out. I would rather just encourage you to sit and to think on what was said, um, the words that we're singing and come talk to me afterwards. That would be great. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. Jesus, thank you that you reward our imperfect faith with perfect gifts. Jesus, thank you that you are patient with us. God, when we don't, we don't see clearly as we ought to, we, we are marred by and encumbered by sin and by our own, our own pride, our, our own just sinful and selfish nature, God. And yet you are so patient with us, so gracious towards us, God. Help us to see you clearly. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wonder, wondrous things out of the word of God. Jesus, help us to behold you. Help us to look at you. Help us to come to a deeper understanding of your glory, of your goodness, of your majesty. Because God, that's how we fight idolatry. Help us to love you more. Help us to have a deeper relationship with you. Again, God, thank you for your patience. Jesus, thank you for your death for your resurrection that you willingly endured and suffered on our behalf in Jesus name Amen You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland consider partnering with the Iceland Project 
For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.